SPACs are back in a big way. In fact, many well-known companies, including Jamba Juice and American Apparel, were acquired in deals involving special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, and selling to a SPAC company can be quick and lucrative, if you know the risks, complexities, and trade-offs. This is KPMG's Privately Speaking podcast series, and this episode is about the SPAC renaissance. Hello, my name is Erica Whitmore, and I'm a partner in KPMG's audit practice and the host of Privately Speaking podcast series. Um, So this series features private enterprise advisors and business leaders addressing topics to help you evolve your business, embrace technology, plan for an exit, or manage wealth transition. And I'm super excited today because I have Gus Garcia with Bank of America and Jeffrey Thomas with NASDAQ. And if, if you don't mind, if I could have each of you briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners today. Sure thing. This is Gus Garcia with Bank of America. I head up our SPAC M&A group and uh, I hail from the great state of Texas, but I'm currently Uh, coming to you guys from Los Angeles, California, and uh, working from home like everybody else. Great. Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Thomas, Senior Vice President of Listings and Capital Markets for NASDAQ, covering the Western U.S. Spent the last 10 years or so working at a couple different platforms, helping private companies get liquidity. So I worked at Second Market, where we traded stocks pre-IPO. I joined NASDAQ to help launch NASDAQ Private Market. We then bought Second Market, and then I started working on our listings team. I'm really excited to talk about SPACs today as a a new opportunity for private companies to get liquidity in the public markets. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I'm I'm really excited about this discussion, and I I think our listeners will be too. So let's just get right to it. Um, So as we discussed, uh, Gus and Jeff, there there is a wide audience here, and so I would like to make sure that our listeners um, who maybe aren't as familiar with SPACs have a little bit of a background. Um, So maybe, Jeff, if if you want to start with just giving a broad background on, on SPACs. Sure. So, you know, the SPAC market has been around uh, for a while now, but really what's been going on, it it used to be that SPACs would raise, you know, a couple billion dollars uh, every year. And then uh, over the last few years, you know, that started to increase to eight, nine, 10, 12 billion. And now this year in 2020, we've seen over $60 billion raised for SPAC IPOs. And so we really, you know, here at NASDAQ stood up and had to take notice because all of a sudden, you know, we used to talk about companies doing a dual track where they'd look at IPO or M&A. And now every company is thinking about the triple track. So it's IPO, M&A, or coming public via SPAC business combination. So it's become a big part of what we do here at NASDAQ. Gus, I think you've probably got some <laughs> some perspective based on your background. Uh, what what are your thoughts in terms of just how this has, has kind of shifted, especially, you know, in the last year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's evolved very quickly, as Jeff just mentioned, and it continues to um, month by month. It's a market that changes very quickly. I think what surprises a lot of people to hear is that it's still a buyer's market, right? At the levels that Jeff was just talking about, you're at 20 times the issuance of where you were historically. That would naturally lead you to believe that the supply has gotten ahead of itself. But there are hundreds and thousands of private operating companies in the United States alone and many more globally. And many of them are wanting to explore 
um, a SPAC transaction. So despite the velocity with which the supply of SPACs has changed, um, the demand for it has kept up. And I think this all kind of goes back to several years ago. Like everything else that seems to have come out of the blue, it's actually been around for quite some time. But back in, I would say, 2016, some very high-quality sponsors um, entered the market. And with high-quality sponsors come uh, relationships with high-quality companies. And it's no surprise to hear that high-quality companies perform better in the aftermarket. And so it created this virtuous circle whereby high-quality sponsors enter, um, better-quality companies come uh, out through the SPAC product and perform better in the aftermarket. And that, in turn, attracts other companies saying, that seems like it was successful. Why don't I try that? And other high-quality sponsors saying, that seems successful. Why don't I try that? And so it's just built upon itself. And well, it's always been there um, are the way that the SPAC works. There have been some edits along the way, but at its core, the way it works, the benefits, they, they haven't changed. But what has changed is people wanting to take uh, a closer look. Having this type of conversation like the one that we're having today would not have happened five years ago. People would have said, oh, SPACs are, are an afterthought. So that, that has changed today. It's really elevated the discussion around what are the benefits and, and considerations of a SPAC. And I want to quickly, Erica, pick up on something that Gus mentioned there, which is there's a huge amount of supply here in the SPAC market, but there's an even bigger supply in terms of private companies. If you go back all the way to 2010, when I was at Second Market, we were talking about then how companies are waiting longer to go public, mm -hmm. and that was yep. creating the need for liquidity in the, the private market. You know, that trend hasn't changed, right? Companies are right. continuing to wait eight to 10, sometimes 12, 15 years to go public. And anytime you have all this capital flowing into the private capital markets, companies are raising more and more money, that has to exit at some point. And so I think SPACs are kind of a natural recognition of that. Um, and it is interesting because it, it doesn't seem like the traditional IPO or even the new phenomenon around direct listings is enough to satisfy this. And the one way you can tell that is, a lot of the companies now that are getting brought public by SPACs were not companies that were considering a traditional IPO. Right, right, exactly. And and how this is one thing um, I think is really important. I think a lot of people are asking this and, and people that may or may not be familiar with SPACs and how they've evolved, but how long will the wave at last? And so how long will the wave last? And, you know, what is it dependent upon? And maybe Gus, you can start. I think it's a it's a very good question. Um, I'm I'm glad you asked it. I, you know, is it durable? Is it not? In in some ways, this comes down to those benefits that people have now taken a look at that were always there, but um, are now visible and talked about. And and there's four big ones that I like to talk about: the two P's and the two S's. Um, so proceeds, projections structure and speed you know if you if you go down the SPAC process and really dissect what is it that you can do in a SPAC that's different than what you could do in an IPO on the one hand if you'd like to obtain more proceeds you don't have to but it's an option 
to generate a bigger amount of proceeds in a SPAC transaction. 20 to 30% of equity value sold, not atypical for an IPO. 40 to 60%, not atypical for a SPAC. So that's, that's number one. Projections is, is number two where because you're not on an S1, which is the legal document that you use in an IPO where there's names of underwriters on the cover, because you're in a different construct, you're able to use projections in your documentation, you're able to talk about your future more freely, mm-hmm. and you spend more time talking to investors as part of the process. It's a much longer marketing process, a much longer diligence process where investors can spend dedicated time with the management team over the course of a SPAC transaction. So that's number two. Structure is one that many people overlook where you can include things like earnouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, earnout means if you're the seller, um, so you're the owner of a private company today, you can benefit when the stock price rises after the close of the transaction. So you can receive newly issued shares in the combined entity. You can structure that feature into the transaction. Can't really do that in an IPO. And then the last one is speed, benefit number four. And the speed aspect in the media gets misreported a little bit. You'll oftentimes hear, oh, SPAC is a much faster way. From start to finish, it's actually not that dissimilar but what's very so happy to hear you say that, Gus. <laughs> yeah, it's well, and so what, what's what's very different is the order with which things happen. Yep. In an IPO, you go through the SEC process first. The SEC process, two and a half to three months, putting in a document, waiting for comments, responding to comments, etc. You have to go through that process first, and then you raise the capital. And in a SPAC, you go raise pipe capital first. You negotiate a merger agreement with a valuation first, and then you go through that two and a half to three month process. And if you think about two and a half to three months in today's capital markets, it's an eternity. Just this year alone, January to March, the market was open to shut because of COVID. March to June, COVID was over in many places. June to September, we're back to it. So you can see how if you're a private company and you're in an industry where the market is open, you want to act as soon as possible to lock that in. Mm-hmm. And that's where that speed really comes in on the SPAC transaction. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when we kind of think about how long will this continue, one thing we, we can't avoid is, you know, how do the regulators look at this? Right? I mean, obviously, right. in NASDAQ, we have a regulatory function. So we apply a lot of the same standards to SPAC business combinations as we do to an IPO. I don't see anything really changing on that front. We'll continue to, to, to optimize as we can. But then it comes down to what does the SEC think about all this, right? And they see the emergence. They see the trend like everybody else. Um, and, you know, one thing I think we've historically seen is when there's a bad outcome, you know, then you see increased regulation. So what is that potential bad outcome you could see here? You know, is there... Um, some way that especially retail or Main Street investors get harmed through this process. Um, that's, you know, one of the key things the SEC looks at is, you know, if there's a way that institutional investors are making a lot of money at the expense of Main Street investors, you can bet that's going to get some scrutiny. And so I think that's going to be one really interesting thing to watch is, 
you know, how does the SEC respond to this trend? How are they thinking about it? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, which which brings us, I'm, you actually helped me think through this, Jeff. I think when we were preparing for this, one of the things that we talked about that to me is is probably something our listeners are extremely interested in is how could we get this wrong, right? And you know, how how can we avoid um, maybe some of the some of the things that companies who did get it wrong, you know, fell into? So I don't know if you know who wants to start, Jeff, Jeff or Gus, but I think our listeners would love to hear that. Well, I think when you kind of look at you know where where does the the potential for issues lie? SPACs, by their nature, have uh, a time bound. Uh, amount of time that, where they have to get a transaction done, right? They also, in certain cases, have really high incentives to get a transaction done. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you get a SPAC that has a short amount of time and a high incentive to get a transaction done, you know, knowing the investors still have, you know, the right to, you know, not vote for that transaction to go through, is that going to create incentives for bad behavior, right? So I think that's one way things can go badly here. Um you know, I think, look, optionality, innovation, um, those are all great things for private companies to have different approaches, to have the way to create the path to the public market that's right for your company, whether it's a SPAC, a direct listing, an IPO, or, you know, any of the other different paths out there. Um, so I think you really want to start and see, you know, what are the motivations and, and where are their motivations that could create people to, to come up with some questionable decisions? Yeah, it's a it's a really great point, guys, because the spec market is changing rapidly, and in any rapidly changing market, there's going to be mm-hmm. uh, the potential for pitfalls, and it's really where the importance of hiring the right advisors, talking to folks like Jeff and myself who have had vast experience and have gone through many of those pitfalls and seen it before is is critical. And one of the, I guess, biggest ones, because in a SPAC, um, maybe taking it a little bit back to the 101, SPACs are a vehicle where shareholders have a right to put money back to the company at the very end of the process. They can ask for their money back. It's called um, redeeming your share for cash. And it's very unnerving because you go through that whole process, you negotiate a a merger, you announce a transaction, and then at the very end, two trading days before the shareholder vote, shareholders can say, you know what, on second thought, I'm going to ask for my money back. And what it really comes down to is getting the valuation right and making sure that you have a valuation that is supportive of where the public market wants to own you. And the pitfall that people fall into um, many times, and many times it's very sophisticated individuals that fall into the pitfall, is to treat this like an M&A transaction where you are across the table from somebody else and um, are negotiating against the other person. And if you do that, you end up with a company that won't trade well because people won't want to own it. And it'll be associated with a transaction where cash leaves the system, it doesn't trade well, there wasn't good liquidity, look at all these examples. But the reality is if you structure it correctly, there's ways to avoid that. There's ways to avoid these pitfalls. There's ways to avoid 
um, bad outcomes for, for shareholders. And it all comes down to negotiating the right way, maximizing your value, not just at the close, but for the entire life of your investment. Um, and that's just one example, but I, I, I do think that it's a, it's a market that requires a little bit of education, handholding, and, and, and advice. But as long as you get the right advice and you've got folks who are doing their diligence and treating this with the care that it requires, I, I think there's going to be a lot of durability to uh, to the market. Yeah. So so even though it's a SPAC, even though the timing may be at least at the onset different than a, a traditional IPO, it still needs to be about shareholder return and not just shareholder return in the next few months, right? Or the next even six. It's it's something after that. More of a long long term long term play. You, you know, one thing um that I did want to get your thoughts on, um, I think, you know, a lot of the listeners will be companies who could be, you know, a potential target of a SPAC, right? And I think they would be thinking, okay, what are some of the things that we could do in case we're approached? Or maybe they're even in talks um, with, you know, SPACs at this point. And one thing I always like companies to think about is is if you are, you know, if you envision yourself as a public company, no matter what path you use to get there, there's a lot of things you need to do to prepare. And whether it's a SPAC or whether it's, you know, a traditional IPO, you know, you need to get your house in order, so to speak, right? You need to have the right advisors, like you you mentioned, including auditors, right? And you need to make sure you get stuff in order, your IT, your governance, things like that. So maybe I, you know, like to hear from each of you, your thoughts on getting ready. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I can start and, and Jeff can, uh, can chime in as well. I from where we sit, and this this can be a, its own podcast, right? Is is going into the details. Here, I, know, I was a little nervous to go there, but I think yeah, we've got to. Exactly. I think we've got to go there briefly. Exactly. So, just from a high level, the the way we start the conversation with any private company that we start talking to is, um, why do you want to be public, and are you ready to be public? It's it's yeah. a philosophical question because. People might think of this as a merger, but the reality is you're going to own the majority of a public company going forward. You're going to need to have earnings calls and 10Qs and 10K filings, and it's a very different outcome than an M&A transaction. And so that's question number one. Um, Are you going to want to be in the limelight? Do you present well? Do you enjoy that sort of scrutiny and pressure? And then the second piece is less philosophical and more um, tangible. There are systems that you need to have in place. Question number one, the long pull in the tent, um, tends to be the PCAOB audit, right? The audit that's required for public companies. (laughs) It's always the accountants that can hold up the show, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, everything that comes along with it, that, that is a standard that requires you to be in compliance with everything that Sarbanes-Oxley uh, was meant to achieve and, and protect against. There's auditing standards and attestation standards and quality control standards, and there's systems that you need to have in place in order to be a public company. And they are costly. Um, they take the right people to be hired to, to operate those systems. And that includes uh, not just at the granular level, but 
CEO, CFO, CO? Do you have actually the right management team that has had some time um, with the company? There have been examples of of uh, companies coming to market um, with not a full C-suite, but they are far and few between. The the best practice and the most successful tend to be folks that are fully in place, um, fully operational, and have actually been operating for quite some time as a private company and have many of these controls um, in place, even as a as a private company. So that that tends to be um, the very first thing that, that that we ask when we talk to a private company. So in addition to, you know, making sure you have all those people, processes and systems that, that Gus talked about for your financial <clears throat> reporting, you know, the other thing you really have to think about is your investor relations function. So in addition to owning and, and operating uh, the largest U.S. equity exchange, um, NASDAQ is also the largest provider of investor relations products and services. So we work with, you know, thousands of public companies around the world to help them with these challenges. And, you know, just because you're going public via a SPAC business combination versus an IPO, you still have to get ready for that first quarter of, of earnings reporting. You still have to deal with inbound investor interest. You should have an, an outbound investor targeting strategy. You want to have a way to measure your investor engagement and sentiment analysis. And even more importantly these days, investors aren't just looking for your financial reporting. They're asking about your ESG or environmental, social, and governance metrics. And so you need to have a whole team in place to kind of think through what are you reporting along those lines across all the different frameworks and rating agencies that are out there. So that's a, a, a muscle that you just won't have as a private company that you need to build up really quickly as a public company. And so you just want to have a good plan in place. And remember that all those investors that you're out there talking to, whether it's for the pipe uh, ahead of the, the business combination or, or getting the vote secured, you need to really make sure you know how they're thinking about your business. What are you sharing in terms of those projections that Gus talked about? Because that's how you're going to be measured as a public company. And, you know, one, two, three, four quarters out, those investors, hopefully they're still with you, are going to be thinking about what you said back then and you need a way to manage those expectations. Yeah, absolutely. And I, at least from my experience, again, um, just getting ready for a company to go public, sometimes the forecasting and that, that discipline and building that muscle of being able to tell investors, you know, what's going to happen is just, is just something a lot of companies don't have uh, build out, built out. Um, so I think we'll go to our last question here. And so we're, we're jumping around a little bit, but um, I think, I think another thing that would be really important is, you know, what stage um, of private companies are good or, or what kind of companies would be good candidates, right? So we've we kind of already talked about what would you do to get ready, right? But, but what, what are some good, you know, industries slash type of companies that would be ideal candidates for a SPAC? That's uh, that's another great question. I, I, I think th this may sound um, obvious or cute. It's not meant to be, but you, you want a company that benefits from a SPAC. Um, you want somebody that actually values those four benefits that we talked about. Those aren't the only four, but those are, are four big ones. And if you um, don't find yourself saying that those are benefits, the, the SPAC isn't for everybody. I, I think we want to be clear about the fact that 
um, there's still a path for IPOs, right? That's going to be appropriate for, for many, many folks. But what you tend to see from just a quantitative perspective, um, a billion dollar threshold is a threshold that for many SPACs and many industries is a bogey of sorts. Billion dollar of equity value after the transaction is done. And that's just because there's some data floating around that says, you know, on average, companies that are less than a billion tend to have higher redemptions, lower trading liquidity, lower stock price performance. And so when you talk to SPACs, many of them will say, that's the minimum that I'm looking for, right? So that's number one. Like everything in life, um, there are exceptions and everything is local. So for example, biotech, you know, their local market is different than that. That tends to be a market where you have smaller companies and smaller SPACs, but um, there really isn't a limit to what industry qualifies. It can be electric vehicles, it can be batteries, it can be online gaming, it can be plastics. Um, all industries that you can think of have come through uh, the SPAC product. It's really a question of what is the SPAC bringing to me and am I actually benefiting from it? And, and when the answer is, oh, I actually have a few benefits that I really care about, um, those are the folks that are uh, going through a, a SPAC process. So I'll, I'll throw out a, a, a little bit of a different perspective. Um, you know, I think Gus is right on the, the benefits and kind of, you know, which companies can, can leverage it. I think one of the things to be really careful about, though, is one of the benefits of the traditional IPO process is you're working with underwriters. And generally what happens is those underwriters will then cover your stock. Of course, there's a, mm -hmm. a Chinese wall between right. those two operations. And I don't mean to imply anything, you know, is going wrong there. But when you go public via a SPAC business combination, you don't have that advantage. So you should think about, are there equity analysts out there that are going to cover you because they cover your sector, your peers, your competitors? Um, or are you, uh, you know, a business that is going to have trouble getting that type of equity coverage? And if, if you're not going to get research coverage as a public company, that's going to impact your ability to develop that, as we talked about, investor relations function and to get those additional uh, investors interested in your name. Now, look, maybe your business is so compelling, investors are beating down your door. <laughs> but if it's uh, at all a nuanced story or something where you need help kind of generating interest in your, your name, then you really want to think about who's going to cover your stock and, and who's going to be out there promoting it if you don't have that underwriter syndicate kind of, you know, working on your behalf through the IPO process. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. And, and just oh, go to ahead, chime Jeff. in because I'm, I'm glad uh, Jeff raised it and I'm going to, I'm going to go, go with a, uh, a shameless plug, if you will. But one of the, you know, like, like the SPAC market, um, I think investment banks and, and, and the market that surrounds it changes quickly as well. And, you know, Bank of America, I think is, the first bank, or at least the only one I'm aware of, where our research policy is now similar to an IPO, right? Where mm -hmm. if yep. Bank of America is your advisor, um, they, the, the policy is to now pick up research, right? And just like an IPO, there's no guarantee, but that policy is in place now. And so things have changed um, and things are evolving, uh, but it's something to look out for because that's absolutely been a difference historically 
and things will continue to evolve. And I think I, it kind of goes back to you, you got to have someone in your corner that is constantly doing these things so that you know exactly what's changing, what hasn't changed. Um, month to month, that changes because that, that policy specifically um, is a recent change, for example, right? So, so something to note, the, the SPAC market is continually changing um, in, in some ways uh, for, uh, for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I cannot thank you enough, Gus and Jeff, for, for joining me today and, and for talking about SPACs and I think giving, us, giving our listeners um, quite a bit to think about. So um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, we look forward to bringing you another um, podcast here soon of Privately Speaking. And again, Gus, Jeff, thank you again. Couldn't, couldn't thank you enough for, uh, for being here with me today. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Thank you for listening to KPMG's Privately Speaking podcast series. And be sure to subscribe to this series to be notified of new episodes. 